May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The Irish author William Trevor tells a story about the Leeson family in a short story that he writes uh, that Protestants living in Northern Ireland in the late 1980s, um, they live in the shadow of a Catholic neighborhood. The Leesons have, um, they have two daughters and three sons. The two daughters have, um, have grown and married, have moved out of the house. The youngest son has a severe mental handicap. The oldest son has uh, moved to Belfast to become a, a street warrior in the army uh, against, um, against the rival uh, Roman Catholics. And, the young, and so that leaves the penultimate son, um, Milton, uh, as the, uh, the one who stays home and works in the family orchards and, and helps uh, bring in the apples and so on. And by God's grace, will someday become the future owner of the farm and, and the orchard. And Milton is a good boy. Um, he's as dutiful as he is pleasant. Uh, he, he does what he's told. He happily does so. His father is, um, is a hard worker, good provider for the family. And he is a defiantly Protestant individual. So much so that he just champions all of his disdain for everything Catholic. He hosts every year a, a gathering at his farm, and uh, these gathering of, of Protestant men, and they, they, they form a parade and march down to the center of the nearby village, um, right into the intersection where the Church of the Holy Rosary sits, wearing their colors, carrying their banners, and then they turn around and walk back to the orchard. And then they have a picnic of fried chicken and potato salad and whiskey. Um, and, and this is sort of a, a big festival event in the midst of, uh, middle of July every year. Milton, the son, goes along affably. He's, um, he's not much into the, the whole politics of the thing, but he enjoys the festivities and looking at the pretty girls. And so he goes along. Um, and, and one day, Milton's father sends him into the orchard early in the day to check on the earliest ripening apples to see if they're yet ready to be harvested. And so Milton does as he told, and he goes into this part of the orchard all by himself early in the morning. And a strange thing happens. There's a woman, much older than him, but not very old. And she, um, she's a beautiful woman. She's, uh, she doesn't look like an apple thief. Um, she's, she's wearing fine clothes, a nice overcoat, high heels, her hair is well done. And Milton looks at her, and he's, he's kind of stunned. And then something really stunning happens. She walks up to him and ever so gently kisses him on the lips and then walks away. Milton says the kiss was so, so slight that he almost didn't feel it. Well, he felt this was so strange, but so strange that he didn't want to tell anybody. He was awkward. He's a teenager and felt like this was sort of an odd thing to happen to him, though it was also sort of magical, and, and so he was sort of caught up in the moment. And a few days later, he decides to go back out to the same orchard to, to see if she's again there. And this time he goes all alone without being ordered to do so. Um, and sure enough, there's the woman. Same overcoat, same dress, hair made the same way, same lipstick. And again, she walks up to him. And again, ever so slightly, kisses Milton on the lips. But this time she says something. She says, I am St. Rosa. And she whispers to him in his ear, the kiss is holy. And she walks away. Milton is stunned. He has no idea what to make of this. A Protestant boy being approached by a saint, obviously not Protestant. And, uh, and how do, what does he do with this? How does he, he wants to keep the secret, 
feels like he probably should keep it secret, but he really can't keep it secret. And as the days go on, it starts to build inside of him that, that he must tell somebody. His brother-in-law is a Protestant clergyman. So he goes to his brother-in-law and he tells him the story. The brother-in-law is aghast. What, what could he make of this? A Catholic saint coming to a Protestant boy. Milton, he says, you must never speak of this ever again. Keep this to yourself. Never speak it, and I will never speak of it either. This, just be put it down to, to foolish adolescent fantasy and let it go. Who ever heard of a Catholic saint visiting a Protestant boy anyway? Milton thinks, well, that's probably a good advice, but he can't keep it to himself. It's still burning within him. He has to find out what's going on. And so he sneaks to the rectory of the Catholic parish, knocks on the door late at night. The priest lets him in. He asks about St. Rosa. The priest helps identify who St. Rosa is, but the priest is very frustrated by this meeting. Why indeed would a Catholic saint visit a Protestant boy when there are quite a few number of good Catholic boys in the neighborhood? Shouldn't the Catholic saints know where they should stay? You know, stay with the Catholic boys. He says, perhaps you should go and tell one of your own clergymen. Milton says, I have. And he told me not to tell anybody. The priest agrees. That's very good advice. Don't tell anybody ever. And Milton goes back home. And he wants to keep the secret. He wants to keep the advice that's been given to him. But inside of him, there begins this burning sensation, this swell that he has to begin to tell people. He has to preach about this. And so one day he gets on his bicycle and he rides off to a nearby village and he begins to preach about the visitation of St. Rosa. Word gets back to the family. His father is none too pleased with it. In fact, he hits him so hard on the side of the face twice that Milton is stunned. He doesn't, can't even hardly see. You'll not do this. His mother is worried. Why would you disgrace our family so? Why would you do this? Remember, late 1980s, Northern Ireland. It's a very controversial time. So Milton tries to do as he told. But every day inside of him, it's like a volcano ready to erupt. And so he just keeps doing it. He keeps going to the nearby villages. He's going to go to every town in the county and preach what's inside of him. And his father and his mother become very outraged. They lock him in his room. He climbs out the window. You see him riding down the road on his bicycle, so they sell the bicycle. Eventually, they, they put bars on the windows. And Milton is locked inside the house. But he tells them, as soon as I get free, I'll do it again. One day, um, the brother, the one that had become a street warrior in Belfast, comes home. And Milton is left alone with his brother while mother and father go out to do something. And when the parents return home, something horrible has happened. The house is ramshackled and, and, and all messed up, and Milton is dead. Perhaps it was burglars or some sort of intruders. But we know, we the readers know as we read the story, there were no intruders. Brother has murdered brother. And instead of grieving, the family is relieved. Their problem is gone. And Trevor ends the story by saying this, lost ground has been regained. I read that story and I was angry. I mean, I was really angry. This is a story of injustice. A young man who wanted to do nothing but good is murdered because of his goodness. 
a young man who's simply trying to live out his vocation, even though it's awkward and it doesn't seem to fit within the paradigms that he's been given, is trying to do what uh, the Almighty God has given him to do. And for that, he suffers fratricide. Lost ground has not been retaken. More loss, more ground has been lost anyway. And, and I thought about, well, you know, this is sort of the, the story of Milton. It's sort of the truth of the world, isn't it? That often injustice prevails. A lot of times people suffer. People are cruel, filled with hate. And sometimes so filled with hate that even kin are blind to things that should be blindingly obvious. The Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 43 seems to be worlds away from Trevor's story of the Leeson family. Isaiah 43 is, did you hear it? It is filled with hope. It is about God's loving kindness. It's about mercy. It's, it's about, about God triumphing and, and how the people of God are, are going to be filled with all these good things. It's filled with these promises. The, the, the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, pulls two of its four stanzas from this passage. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Isaiah 43 is triumphant. It's fantastic. It's not at all like uh, Trevor's story of lost ground. But if you're going to read Isaiah 43, you have to do what the lectionary doesn't give us the option of doing, and that is of reading Isaiah 42. I mean, if you backed up just a little bit, if we were in a church, if we were kind of, you know, had Bibles with us. Um, we would back up this a little bit, but we don't. And so, alas, you'll have to listen to it instead of, instead of reading it yourself. I, I want to read to you the end of Isaiah 42. The prophet writes this, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind but my dedicated one? Or blind as a servant of the Lord? The prophet is saying that God is saying, that his people are blind and deaf, that they don't see the things they ought to see. In fact, it is personified in a single individual. He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prison. They have become plunder with none to rescue Spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen to the time? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Who, who actually let people come in and destroy Israel? Who, who let this happen? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways we would not walk? In whose laws they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Woohoo! 
that's a tough lesson. That doesn't show up in the lectionary. You know, they don't, they don't put this passage in there. That's not the, not the sort of thing that kind of gets you all stirred up and excited. Um, but this is an important passage. It's the one that makes sense of what we read next in Isaiah 43. Israel is about to be punished. In fact, they're about to be destroyed. And if you read through chapter 43, you'll find out the identity of the destroyer is going to be Babylon. Babylon's going to come in and destroy Zion. Why? Why would God let this happen? Isaiah 42. Because God will not share his glory with anyone. Isaiah 42, 7. They are turned back and utterly put to shame. Who? The ones who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are my gods. If you read the full report of all that Isaiah has to say, it's a long book. It takes a while to work through. But if you read through the whole book, it's all that all that Isaiah has to say about Israel. Idolatry has given rise to all kinds of problems and a total breakdown of the moral fiber of the people of God. They have become so diluted and profaned that their ethos, their way of living, is virtually no different than the pagan nations around them. um, There's no distinguishable difference in the way they do business, the way they treat the poor, the way they treat aliens and sojourners. There's no difference in their sexual mores. They are virtually exactly like the pagans all around them. The Ten Commandments have been discarded, and chaos is the norm. Isaiah 42 makes sense. This is what the people deserve, right? I mean, this is what you deserve when you're a lawbreaker and a criminal, when you throw God's law off to the side, when you don't care about morality, and you just simply want to do whatever you want to do, when everyone does, as as the book of Judges says, what's right in their own eyes, what they deserve is judgment. And that's what they get, judgment and plenty of it. The part that doesn't make sense is Isaiah 43, (laughs) the part that we want to read, the part that we like, that goes like this. But now, but now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. But now, fear not, you are mine. Judgment is coming to Israel, but it will not mark the end. Israel will not be utterly destroyed like the northern tribes of Israel were. Southern Israel, Judah, will not be completely overcome. There will be dark days. Oh, there will be. There will be fiery trials. People will be invaded. Many people will die. They will be taken away. All of their wealth will be taken away. And they will be, the people who live, will be exiled nearly 500 miles away from their home. The point then is this. That Israel is about to be judged, but she will not be abandoned. God does not abandon his people. God does not abandon his people because he made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham, not just to save his family, but that through Abraham, God would save all the peoples of the earth. In fact, that he would save the entire cosmos. So you say, well, that's kind of fascinating, interesting, nice little history lesson, Joe. Thank you very much. Um, but what about to us, you know, what does that mean to us? How do, how, do we, how do we make sense of this? Personally, I guess, first way, uh, we make sense of it as individuals. To the, all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, we've been baptized into the body of Christ. We have become, as Tom Wright calls us, 
the Israel of God. We are the people of God. And so the promise to us is this. Not that we will avoid hardships. We surely shall not. That we may not avoid hardship and correction. We surely shall not. But that God stays with us and never abandons us. That God is always with us. Um, the, the, the hymn, How Firm of a Foundation, I mentioned before, was sung at, at, at Teddy Roosevelt's funeral, at Woodrow Wilson's funeral, at Robert E. Lee's funeral. All three of these had the same hymn sung at their funeral. Because they were men who knew about great success but also great hardship. They knew something about when through the deep waters I call thee to go. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. I guess personally, to you and to me, it's this. When it seems like all hope is gone, don't give up on God. God has not given up on you. And I'll tell you what, we're all there sometime, aren't we? There's some day where we just kind of feel like the whole world is crashing around us. And so this message comes to us individually. Don't give up on God. God has not given up on you. But I think it goes bigger than that, more than just me and you. It's, it's corporate. It's, it's the church, the church um, Catholic, the church around the world. Because the church is not an organization of people designed by people to serve the needs of people. That's not what the church is. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. The church is, is God at work in the world. We are the people of God. There's another hymn that I was thinking about as I was working through this, and it's, it's the church's one foundation. Do you know this hymn? Yeah, the church's one foundation. You know this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her, her life he died. But the hymn goes on, and, and this is the, the verse that always kind of stuck with me. It, it says, Through scornful wonder men see her, the church, sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The woes of the church in the world, oh my word, how divided we are. You know, uh, I had a professor in college who said, one of the big problems with the Protestant Reformation is we went from having one pope to where everyone became their own pope. Um, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, this week, uh, Anglican primates will meet in, in Canterbury for the first time since 2007. Do you know why they haven't met since 2007? Because they can't talk to one another. They're so upset with one another that they can't talk to one another. And they, they're so far apart that they feel like just getting together is going to cause more problems. But they're going to give it another try. Already we've heard walkouts are scheduled. The whole world will groan. Oh my, they can't even sit down and talk to one another. We'll be embarrassed again. Isaiah's promise comes to us. God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon the church. It might look like it. It might look we're kind of distressed and pulled apart, but God will not abandon us. And we could go on, couldn't we? The sight of losing people to the banality of secularism on the one hand, or the insipid religions on the other seems distressing, doesn't it? But the kingdom will not cease. Secularism, you know, crazy religions will not have the last word. God has the last word. Or radical Islamic terrorism, it shall not prevail. Oppressive governments and new forms of fascism, 
They shall not prevail. Why? Because the King of kings and Lord of lords is in control of history. And our God has the last word. The Creator God has the final word in all of history. And so when I got over being a little bit angry with Trevor's story, (laughs) I started thinking about the irony of it. Lost ground. Lost ground had not been regained. Lost ground had been lost, right? Um, Killing off poor Milton. Uh, The Leeson family had not retaken ground. Fratricide was the proof that they had not moved any further down the road. God's not involved in their silly disputes between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. He's not picking sides because they're both on the wrong side. The right side is the side of of love and mercy and, and inclusion. Least of all, God is not on the side of hatred. What God does side with is his people. And he always sides with his people. They may, they may need correction. They may need discipline. But they will never be abandoned. Not because they deserve it, but because God in his mercy will not allow it to happen. That's a promise you can depend on. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.